You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey, everybody. If you're interested in learning how to leverage LinkedIn for your business, this episode is sponsored by my book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful LinkedIn Users. To get your free copy, just send a text to 44222 with the word seven habits. That's the number seven habits to 44222. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. His name is Patrick McKenna. He's the founder and CEO of Strike Social, which is a global technology-enabled digital advertising company. He founded the company in 2013, which was named the number 17th fastest growing privately held company in the U.S. on the Inc. 500. He's also been ranked two more times on the Inc. 500 since then. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Strike Social develops AI-powered software and services for digital advertisers across industry verticals with over half of the Fortune 500 benefiting from his solutions, including brands like Beat, Xbox, Honda, Mattel, and the line, you know, and the list goes on. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Hey, thanks, Dennis. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. This is interesting because I love, I love the AI component, the machine learning, the technology component. And today, just so everybody has a sense as to what we're going to do here today and why I had Patrick on the show, you know, Patrick was able to hit his company and his team were able to hit the Inc. 500 three times. I mean, that's no easy feat. He was number 17 out of 5,000 companies that have, you know, that apply, well, hundreds of thousands that applied and over 5,000 that were ranked. So that doesn't happen on accident. And during the pre-interview, we were talking a little bit about how he was able to do that. And one of the big things that he did was he was able to differentiate himself from the competition. And I think that's a, that's been a key conversation that I've had with a lot of people lately. And I think it's something that's missed by a lot of entrepreneurs and marketers. So he's going to tell us how he did that. But before we do that, just give us a super quick backstory, because I know you got a really interesting backstory. Give us a minute or two. I mean, you were in telecommunications, you work for Microsoft, and you know, you've been an entrepreneur for a long time. So fill in the gaps, and then we'll dive right in. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Dennis. You know, it's hard to know where to start. I tried to... Whenever I was at a company, I always looked for, you know, those challenges that a company faces and and how to just scale myself. So, you know, I was a sales rep at MCI back in the day and I was looking at what they were doing at MCI and I realized that they were allowing companies to be entrepreneurs there as well. And so, I ended up leaving there and starting a a telecommunications company that actually competed with MCI. It was called a switchless reseller. What we would do is we would we were reselling MCI services. And the differentiation there was we could do it for less, offer it for less and take less margin. You know, we didn't have the office space and all the, you know, the 10,000 people that worked there. So that that was one. And then at Microsoft, I was in the video and audio group. So Windows Media Player, if anybody on the podcast is old enough to remember that stuff. You know, that group, I was in a group of about 50 people and that ended up turning into, 
you know, the Windows Media and Entertainment Division, which has like Xbox and MSN now. And I don't know, I think there's like 40,000 people that are in that group. So that was really fun. And, and I loved working. Microsoft was a great place to, to learn and work. And I was there for about 12 years. And then when YouTube came out, you know, audio and video finally had a monetization engine. You could actually support that through advertising. And that was our, you know, that was where we sort of punched in. We, we knew audio and video. We knew it was going to be really big on the internet. And YouTube sort of provided that, oh, hey, look, now there's a business model here. Because at Microsoft, we were really on the bleeding edge of that. So, so that's, the, that's the backstory. And that took me from, you know, 91 or 92 to 2013 when we started Strike Social. Yeah, so when did YouTube launch? You know, that's a good question. I feel like 2006, it could have been as early as 2004, but it started to get bigger in 2006. I think that might have been when Google bought them, 2006 or, or 2007, when they got purchased. So Perfect. Yeah. All right. So, so tell me a little bit about, let's get a little bit micro into Strike Social. I know you did about 48 million in 2017. So you're growing rapidly. Okay. I mean, that's yes. how you were able to hit the Inc. 500 multiple times. Tell me a little bit about how you guys, what's the primary strategy that you use to go out and get new clients for your business? I mean, are you using paid social campaigns? Are you doing it more old school, press in the flesh? Are you using, you know, social media? Is it inside sales? I mean, tell me a little bit about how you guys go out because you're landing some huge brands, right? I mean, these aren't companies that you can typically cold call. I'm sure, that, you know, maybe some of them did come that way, but how do you go out and get clients today? What's the number one strategy you use? Yeah. So we work with the large agencies, the holding companies. So, you know, WPP, Publicis, IPG, OMD. And so those groups, I mean, the reason we call them holding companies is the way that they scaled was they went out and bought a bunch of other agencies or started other agencies. So in WPP, there might be 3,500 3, different agencies that they also own, right? So there'll be Group M and Mediacom and MEC and Ogilvy. And, you know, so they'll, they'll run the gamut from from media buying to creative to PR, and they do that at a global scale. They're everywhere. And that would be just one example of one large holding company. That was how we targeted, because Dennis, you're right, you can't call into Microsoft and scale that at that level with those companies. They've already signed a contract with a large holding company. You'd be saying, hey, I can help you with this thing. And they'd be like, well, that thing is handled by the agency I have a contract with, right? So, so that's what we did. We went to the holding companies. So basically those agencies in reality, are they your clients? Is that who you're yes. built? Okay. So the agencies are your clients. So let's kind of peel that back and mm -hmm. kind of divert it that way. You didn't go direct to Xbox and Microsoft and all these different companies. You went to these agencies. How was it you were able to land these big agencies? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people, you know, that are similar to you that go to them and try to present, you know, their value and why they're different and what they can offer. How is it that you, you know, what channel did you take to get there? Was it referrals? Was it, you know, pressing the flesh? I mean, how did you get into some of these big agencies? Yeah. Pressing the flesh for okay. sure. Yep. 
so a lot of relationships and, and referrals and just developing those relationships kind of belly to belly. Yeah. And they'll, you know what, if there's something compelling there, they'll, they'll give you an audience, you know, they're, they're good enough to take meetings for the right topic. And we had, we had the right topic, right? We, you know, YouTube was advertising on YouTube was, was fairly new and, and it was fairly nuanced, right? There were ways that you could perform there and they were looking for that kind of help. So that helped a lot, right? Yeah. So I know you bootstrapped this thing early on, but you raised a little bit of capital. Tell us a little about that. How did you, you know, what was the process here of raising the capital? How much did you raise? If you don't mind me asking, I mean, how did that work? Yeah, no, not at all. So uh, initially we we went up to to Sand Hill, like, like probably most people do, looking at VCs and that was eating up so much of our time that after about three months of putting those presentations together and going up there and trying to find that seed investor, we just decided to just hunker down and just build the business. And so from 2013 to, you know, from 2013 of March to about September, it was all us, you know, I was funding the business with the capital that I had saved. And then we went out, you know, we went out to market. We, we launched on TechCrunch. The design was always to be technology-driven organization. And then we started selling, you know, and it, it was literally, I'd put a backpack on and, and went out to the agencies and said, hey, here, here's what we have. We didn't get our first investor until a year after that, probably in March of, in that time frame, March of 2014. We raised $250,000. But at that point, Dennis, we were already at a point where we were profitable growing rapidly. And so we had a much better story. And and it, I was so, I'm so happy with the way that it turned out because we were able to keep so much more of the organization in our ownership. And at that point, it was really like, I had the ability to look at my investor and say, you know what, I, you know, I can't guarantee you're going to get a 10x return here, but I can promise you that you're not going to lose your money. You know, we are basically using the money to grow faster and finance accounts receivables at that point, which was a great position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely something to be said about people that are able to bootstrap and push off raising that money. Even though you knew you were probably going to need it, you were able to push it off for a year or two or extended period of time so that you weren't pre-revenue. I mean, you had an established business. Yes, it was young, but it was growing. Revenue was coming in. You were getting clients. And that says a lot to a client, right? Or you know, to a potential investor. So I love the fact that you were able to bootstrap it. And of course you had a little bit of your own money and that's just typically friends, family, kind of how it goes when a lot of people bootstrap their business, but I'm a big fan of bootstrapping. So I know let's, let's dig into the meat and potatoes here because you did a couple of things that really differentiated yourself from the competition. And I think, and I could be mistaken, but I think that was a huge part of why and how you've been able to grow so rapidly and why the company's kind of on a you know, on a great trajectory growing year after year. So could you kind of expand on that and kind of peel back the onion? Tell us what you did, what you saw when you were coming into the industry, how and why you did that. Yeah, well, so the offer from our competitors, the pricing that they were presenting to the clients seemed out of whack with what they were telling the client that they were charging, right? So there wasn't a transparent relationship between what they were selling and what was being delivered. And so I'll give you an example. A competitor might say, 
hey, we're going to get you X number of views and it's going to cost this amount of money. And we're only taking a 15% margin. Well, <laughs> either they were really bad at buying or they were taking more margin than they were saying they were taking. And so what we did is we entered the market in a transparent way. So we had a higher margin than that. And we would tell them, our clients, and the client would be like, oh, wow, that, that, that seems really high. And we would say, look, just test us. And we would come in 40% to 70% less expensive, better ROI for the customer. And we were able to retain that margin. So it was a win for us. It was a win for the client. And it was just about being transparent. It's like, look, this is what we need to take to run our business and grow and continue to invest. But look what you're getting on the other side. You're getting this performance that you're not getting anywhere else. And so that kind of went viral for us, you know, in, in a sense, and allowed us to keep a great profit margin and deliver the performance that the, that the industry, you know, frankly deserved. And so we are talking about transparency before transparency was even really a thing. Yeah. So, so that, let me, that, let, let me peel that back really quick. Cause you said sure. something interesting. You said your competitors would go out and say, Hey, you can get X views for Y cost and we're going to retain 15% margins. And so they shared that they were somewhat transparent in the way they at least talked about the relationship. How was your, was it a contractual thing where you guaranteed you were only taking 25%? Did you show all the media cost and how was the transparency fulfilled on the back end other than just verbally? Great point. We would log, we would either buy it on their account so that they could see exactly what we were doing, or we would log them into our account. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm talking about complete transparency. Like they could see exactly what was going on in say AdWords or Facebook ad manager. Gotcha. And your competitors weren't doing that. They were just no. kind of they were brushing that component off and saying, Hey, listen, we're only making 15%. So they, but they wouldn't prove it. They, they were just flipping them a report. Gotcha. Which, you know, yeah. which, which you can make that look any way you want, obviously. Sure. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. All right. So I love that because it's funny because, you know, I think it was Sally Hogshead who said it for where I heard it first, where, you know, sometimes different is better than better. Right. So you have a lot of companies, especially in the service industry, that are trying to be better and better and better. And it's hard to be better than everybody, but sometimes all you have to do is be different, right? Right. Yeah. No, you're, you're onto something there for sure. So I yeah. think that, I think the way you differentiated yourself with that transparency, you know, where nobody had really been doing that before, built a lot of trust and got you a lot of introductory relationships, that, which at some point you're going to have to stand on your own value, right? You're going to have to perform. Otherwise they're just not going to continue with you. So but you got into the dance, right? You got to first base. You got those initial, you know, orders, which is typically the hardest part of getting a new client, getting that first order, right? Getting breaking traction with those first orders, especially when you're talking about large organizations, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in revenue, like some of these agencies, I'm sure, are doing. And it just starts with the test, right? You know, it was just like test us and compare. And then to grow, you know, the way we did, we had to retain. Like, like you can't hit that 17th fastest without retaining that customer. And because we had that honest relationship with them, they knew why they were using us. The performance was there. There was no aha moments because when you're not transparent, you're just not telling the truth, right? 
And so you do get caught in that. And I never wanted to be on the phone with a customer and have a situation where there was like, oh, they looked under the hood and gee, you know, let's have this really (laughs) sort of intense, terse conversation about what really happened here with your quote unquote 15%. And you know, Dennis, like I had people who were competitors of ours, you know, basically saying we are ruining the market. And, you know, I just sort of, I just sort of laughed at that because what created, what ended up happening is it created a situation for companies where they weren't transparent, where they had to come down and be transparent. And once you've modeled your business on on an actual like 40 to 60% margin, coming back down is, is really tough. Like you've got to re, you got to reconfigure your entire business where we built ours at that transparent level. So it was easier, easy for us. Yeah. And I think the other part of it is part two that I want you to talk about, which is, you know, because you were transparent, right. And you were fixed on what margins you could make, even though they were good margins. I think that may have led or was a big part of kind of how you, the second step of differentiating, which was how you incorporated value-added services like your tech. So can you expand into the tech side of it? Because I know machine learning and AI is a big part of your platform and a differentiator at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about that with us? Yeah. And I think a lot of that is about believing in your business too, because when you're investing your profits into technology, you know, those are profits that you could just be paying yourself, right? Or you could continue to grow the service side of the business. So for us, we had a plan. We wanted to build that artificial intelligent data science SaaS solution for our customers who are like, look, like I need to pull the levers for my client. And so I need a technology solution here. And for us internally, it was like, we didn't want to have a thousand people in the service department, right? We wanted to have a technology solution that would allow us to continue to scale because, you know, as in anything, margins do go down. And so we wanted to be prepared for that and continue to invest in that. And that's not always easy, you know, because you're, you might be replacing someone in the service, a, a service job with a tech, you know, a a guy who can program and the programmer costs more money. Right. And so, and no one's really getting fired. You're just growing. So maybe replacing isn't the right word, but you know, eventually what you're saying is I've got a technology solution so that I don't have to hire 200 more service people into the business. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So if I heard what you said, you took those early profits from the service side of your business and you invested into the tech side because you realized that you wanted to scale. And in order to scale, right, you can either leverage human capital or Mm -hmm. technology or both Mm -hmm. or a best of both worlds. But, you know, human capital is, can be challenging, right? Because it's, can be very expensive, time consuming. There's a lot of turnover. And there's a whole myriad of issues, you know, pros and cons with that. On the tech side, it just gave you a different lever to scale. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's kind of what I extrapolated from that. You're right on point. And you know what? The cool sort of byproduct of what we ended up getting out of the company is because we are in the service side of the business, 
and we're in the tech side as well, we're really good at servicing the tech, right? <laughs> I don't know if, if you've noticed this, but you have those pure SaaS companies, essentially you can't get a hold of ever for the service side of the business, right? They just- Unfortunately. They yeah. And it's, that's really frustrating. You're like, hey, I, I'm having a challenge here and I need to talk to somebody and there's no one on the line. And so that, that, was a, that was a really cool, because when we went to Sand Hill and said, hey, look, we're going to build this service, but here's our roadmap, they're like, you can't do both. And I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to build the service and invest in the tech and we have both sides covered. So we don't just have customers hanging out there going, wow, this, I've got a bug or whatever. I can't use it right now. It's not working. Or how do I actually do this piece of it? I forgot in the training. And you know what I mean? Like I, it's just, I'm really proud of what we were able to accomplish. We, well, in part of it is Dennis, people are going to tell you that you can't do it. And being able to do it is you know, probably the the most fun part of it, you know, going back and going like, yeah, well, you said we couldn't. And look, here we are. We did. Yeah. It's so funny because when I started my logistics company back in 2003, people looked at me, including my family, um, like I had a big green eyeball sticking out of the middle of my forehead and I was an alien. Like they were like, what do you know about logistics? You know, it's so competitive. It's low margin. Why are you going into this industry? And, you know, I took the perspective very similar to you. I knew that technology was going to be a big part of that because the transportation industry had a tendency back then, particularly to be laggards when it came to innovation, right? Only the biggest companies, the largest companies out there were doing any innovation. Everybody else was still operating on Excel spreadsheets and chalkboards. I mean, it was, it was embarrassing, right? So that was a big part of it. So I, I understand exactly what you did. And I think it was brilliant how you were able to differentiate yourself in in a whole variety of ways. But those two ways that we just talked about today were really, really innovative and amazing. And I love the way that you've, you know, you formulated that and and it's paid off in spades. The results speak for themselves. So, Hey, listen, we're going to do a couple rapid fire. Then we're going to wrap it up for today. Okay. What's your, besides your software, right? What's your favorite software growth tool or software that you're using to grow your business? If If you had to pick one, my favorite pick one, you know, I like where Drift is going. Do you know Drift? Oh, yeah. Drift? Yeah. yeah. I like where they're going. I like where their their head's at. I think that they've got a lot more to accomplish, but we use it a lot. Yeah, I like perfect. That one. Drift, love yeah. it. And yeah. what would be one book that you would recommend to my audience, something that made a lasting impression with you or helped you along your journey? Oh, gosh. Seven Habits, Highly Successful People. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That was was an early, early personal development book for me. I'll make sure that I include those in the show notes. But before we close out, let everybody know how they can connect with you, learn more about Strike Social, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Yeah, it's real simple. StrikeSocial.com. You can hit our drift bot and you're going to get, you know, an SDR human being in there after, you know, you you run out of the, the tree that drift gives you. And you can reach me there or, or LinkedIn. I'm really good with LinkedIn. Anybody can reach me there. Patrick McKenna. Those are probably the two, the two main ones for me. Love it. Well, listen, congrats on hitting the Inc. 5,000 multiple times. I have a feeling you're, we're probably going to see you on the list again this year when that comes out. So again, congrats. I appreciate you being on the show. I'll make sure I include all those that info and those links in the show notes. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Dennis. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. All right.
Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.